We're going to focus on this thought today. Follow the good shepherd, for he is our guide and guard who leads us home. Follow the good shepherd, for he is our guide and guard who leads us home. And we'll really look at these in three parts. We're going to look at the guide in one through three, the guard in verse four, and ultimately the destination in five and six. So the guard, read with me verses one through three. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So Psalm 23 is attributed to David. And not only did David actually grow up as a, as a physical shepherd by occupation, but he became the king of Israel. And in 2 Samuel 5, God actually calls David the shepherd of my people. He is to shepherd the flock of Israel. He's to be a shepherd king. And yet we see in verse 1, that David, the shepherd king, actually acknowledges that the Lord is his shepherd. I mean, think about that. The the greatest king of Israel to ever live. And he's saying, it's it's not me leading. It's ultimately the Lord. God is the true shepherd king over his people. And so, therefore, this means David and all of Israel see themselves as sheep in need of a shepherd. You see, sheep are prone to wander. So therefore, they need a guide. And they need someone to provide. And we see the Lord is the shepherd that provides for his people. Just the end of verse 1, he says, I shall not want. And here, David's not saying that because God is the shepherd, every desire he ever has will be met. Rather, he's saying God is worthy of my trust because the very things that I need, God will provide for. And verses 2 and 3 really flush out what is it that God, the guide, provides. You see, he guides and provides all the necessities of our life. We see in verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. That is, he gives us a place of rest. He feeds us. Gives us the sustenance we need. He leads me beside still waters. We notice this isn't tumultuous, but it's actually just still. It's calm. It gives you a place to drink and be nourished. He restores my soul. Gives me the refreshment and rest that I need. He strengthens me in the paths of righteousness. And if we notice... In all of these statements, it's actually God who's the one that acts. He makes, he leads, he restores. The Lord is our guide. He is the one who gives us direction in life. You see, he's saying if if we follow the way of the shepherd, we won't fall off into these crooked elements and crooked roads of unrighteousness, but rather the straight and narrow path of righteousness is where he will lead. And we have confidence in this because how does verse 3 end? It's all for his name's sake. The shepherd acts in such a way that his character, his nature, his very name is revealed. 
And it's important to note, for the Hebrew culture, they put a lot of stock and value in your name. And so the fact that his name is revealed through this, it is for his name's sake, he's saying, you can go to bat on who I am. Because all the things just said will be forever the reality of who I am. Our God is our guide who provides. And verse 2 and 3 show us how a good and holistic guide he actually is. But the question is, are we following him? In your journey through life, who is your guide? Who or what are the road signs in your life that keep you headed forward? Who is your life's GPS? Is your GPS your parents? Do you rely heavily on their guidance and voice? When you come to the crossroads, is it them that you ultimately turn to for clarity, for direction, for discernment? Is your GPS culture? Are you finding yourself swayed by the arguments that are being made? Is your understanding of righteousness and unrighteousness, good and bad, right and wrong, is it being shaped by what culture says? Have we simply gotten into the flow of culture's traffic and put on cruise control? Or are you your own guide? Is it your desires, your wants, your needs that trump all else? My way or the highway? We shut out all of their voices and say, I've got my vision, I've got my plan, and that's where I'm going. See, we all have a guide or guides in life. And though our guides aren't necessarily leading us astray, some of them can actually be very helpful. Psalm 23 is revealing that we have one true guide who will lead us in righteousness and one true guide who will ultimately lead us home. He is the guide that trumps all others. So how does God lead his people? How does God guide his people today? He guides us through his word and his people. You see, first, God guides us through his very word. We are told that the word is the lamp unto my feet and the light to my path. See, God has given us his word so that we may know him. This is the revelation of God. To know God is to know what he says about himself. So we look to the word for clarity and direction. And the reality is the better we know this word, the better we saturate ourselves in this book, the easier it will be to follow. The easier it will be to have clarity when we feel at a crossroad. Because the reality is, if we don't know the word, how are we to know where to go? So we read it. We memorize it. We meditate. We let it just saturate our bodies and our minds and our souls. And Christian, the beauty is that not only do we see the word here, but we actually see the word made flesh in the person and work of Christ. He is the word made flesh. We see that in John 1. And to know God is to know ultimately his son, is to know Christ. I mean, he is the bread of life that nourishes us. He is the water of life that fills us. He is the one that gives us rest. He is righteousness incarnate. 
We see the comparison to the good shepherd and what he does, ultimately finding its fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. God has given us the word incarnate and the word of the Bible to guide us. But second, God guides us through his people. And specifically, we see that God has actually blessed his church with pastors and elders to help guide. You see, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter tells the elders in 1 Peter 5, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So just as as David saw God ultimately as his shepherd, the role of the pastor and elder is really to be the under-shepherd under the chief shepherd who is Christ. So though God has given the church elders and they have authority in the church, it's always under the submission and authority of the great shepherd, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. God in his good design has given us church elders to care for our soul. They desire to feed and nourish you through the word of God. I mean, they seek to guide you through the word and through being an example to the flock, as we saw in 1 Peter 5. And therefore, I really urge you to to take advantage of the scripturally qualified men that you've been blessed with in this church who care for your soul. I mean, as one that stood among the elders for a number of years here, I cannot speak highly enough about how much they genuinely care for you, genuinely want to know what is going in on your life, genuinely want to help lead you and guide you as they are led and guided through the word. When your heart heart breaks, their heart breaks. When you rejoice, they rejoice. And so friends, invite them into your life. When you feel like you're at a crossroads and don't know what to do next. When you're struggling with a sin and it cannot shake it. When you're questioning just transitions to make. Don't wait, but go to them. I mean, as as I thought about my transition from the branch down here up to Henson, um, I mean, I had conversations with Doug pretty much from day one of him being on staff here, of voicing, hey, this is... This is my thought for the future. Um, does, does that make sense? Bringing in the other elders in that process. We want to be invited into that because we ultimately care for you and want to help see you flourish and to keep you on the path of righteousness. God has designed the church in this way to guide and bless his people. And we also see that God has given us the local body. He's given us all these one another commands in scripture where we are to link arms with one another. And to help guide each other along the path. We're the people that pick up somebody when they've fallen down. You see, we're encouraged to exhort and encourage one another along the way. I mean, you can think about it this way. As members of the church, we're actually committing to caravan on the journey of life together. And the beauty is that not only does God guide us, and as we see, all, all, these, all these things that he said are, are pretty encouraging. 
We feel safe. We still feel secure. But what about when life gets rough? When these tumultuous waters actually arrive in our life and it doesn't feel still anymore? See, not only does God guide, but he also guards. He is our protector in times of need, in times of trouble. So let's look at verse 4, the guard. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Again, in verse 4, life isn't so plush anymore. Rather, these green pastures and still waters have been replaced with a valley of the shadow of death. And the imagery would have hit home for David's original audience. Many of them being in kind of the, the sheep culture as well, they would have understood that during the time of migration, they would migrate because grass was not plentiful, water was running bare. It was ever elusive. And so the shepherds would actually have to lead their sheep through these deep, deep caverns, kind of weaving through the hillside to look for water and grass for their sheep. These stream beds that had dried up from the desert heat, the air would often be heavy. And these cliffs would block the sun from being seen. Shadows would overwhelm them. You see, this word picture emphasizes the weightiness of life's circumstances. And we notice that David doesn't say, even though I, I, I may walk, but even though I walk, suffering and hardship is going to happen in the Christian life. I mean, if you haven't experienced it already, we know shadows will come. It might be 100 degrees today in Oregon, but let me tell you, Shadows are coming. Clouds will come. And it could be that darkness that overwhelms you of a bad diagnosis that has completely flipped your life upside down. It could be a miscarriage that sends you reeling, a lost job, a broken relationship, mental health struggles. And yet, in kind of the shadowiest of shadows, how does David respond? I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. There's nothing to fear because the Lord, the guide, is also the Lord, our guard, who is with us. He is a shepherd by our side, and so we have no need to fear. I mean, if we remember the words of Jesus, he says, in the world... You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The one who has overcome does not leave your side. Rather, he plants himself next to you. He provides for us. Even when life is low and darkness surrounds, we know that his light does not diminish. Rather, he is the light in the midst of our shadows. He continues to lead and direct. And part of his guidance is actually guarding. It's kind of two sides of the same coin. We see David says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
And the rod and the staff are, are, are tools of protection and correction. You see, the rod would have been understood to be this kind of shorter mace-like instrument that would be used to ward off enemies and, and, and dangers and animals that would come and try to take the sheep. And the staff would have been this much longer walking stick to just kind of help lead and prod the sheep along in the direction the shepherd sees fit. So how does God guide his people today? We saw that he guides through his word and his people. So how does God guard today? Fancy that, through his word and through his people. You see, his word is the very thing that we have based our lives on. His word gives shape and clarity to what it means to follow him. His word is the guardrail that helps redirect our path. And most often, God uses his word through his church and through his people to be the guard. See, the church, the, this comes primarily through discipline. But hear me out, I'm sure most of us, when we hear the word discipline, and we are in a church setting, we automatically jump to excommunication. Which, I'll be honest, you're correct. There is a form of discipline in the church that is excommunication. But rather, I'd argue that the church, as God's guard through his word, does it in multiple spheres. And we really see this idea of corrective discipline and formative discipline. Now, corrective discipline is what we most often associate with discipline in the church. See, it, it is whenever we specifically admonish or correct a particular member of sin that we see in their life. And realize, realize I, I said, whenever. Corrective discipline is not merely excommunication. In many ways, oftentimes it's very informal. It's simply coming up to a brother or sister in the church and being like, hey, I don't think you should be doing that in your life. It's recognizing the sin that we see and confronting. And I know in my life, the primary person that disciplines me is my wife. I mean, Anna and I go through life together day in and day out. She's going to see me at my highest of highs and my lowest of lows. And so Anna disciplines me when, when she corrects me. When she says, hey, you shouldn't have spoken to me like that. You shouldn't have spoken to the kids like that. You need to change your actions. So in many ways, we see corrected discipline in a very informal way. And yet we still do recognize that corrected discipline can come in, in a formal way as well. And when we think of math, passages like Matthew 18 that kind of guide us, and how do we engage with somebody who is unrepentant in their sin? It's totally okay to keep walking in the ways of wickedness. And in these settings, we do. We bring them before the whole congregation. And, and, and we vote on whether or not we think that this person's life reflects that of a Christian. You see, the rod serves as, as a way of protection to discipline not only those outside, but even those inside the church. Corrective discipline protects the purity of the church for the name of Christ. 
Because ultimately, all of this is for his namesake. Our lives are for his namesake. Corrective discipline serves to expose the sheep. I mean, the wolf in sheep's clothing. And the other type of discipline is formative. Formative discipline is the type of discipline that happens, honestly, much more frequently. It's really the things in the Christian life that form us. It's what we're doing right now, sitting under the word of God preached on Sundays. It's faithfully showing up to church with those that you have covenanted with. It's midweek gatherings. It's community group. It's one-on-one discipleship. It's time in the word. It's when we encourage one another in the ways of the Lord, being convicted of the word preached or read. You see, in these ways, you are being formed through these various disciplines. I mean, as I'm married to Anna, she continues to form me as well. It's going back to the covenant I made with her on my wedding day, to spending time reading the word together, praying together, talking about what we learned from the sermon that was preached. You see, in all these ways, we are being shaped and formed. The Lord uses these things in our lives to correct and form us. And both of these, corrective and formative disciplines, is actually a kindness of the Lord. Remember what David says? His rod and his staff comfort me. It comes down to his care for our souls. I mean, we can think of this discipline as as our GPS being recalculated. And he's saying, you veered off, let's get back on course, heading towards that destination. It's the God-given means that serve as guardrails to protect his people, to protect his flock. You see, God didn't merely set us on our journey and say, hey, good luck. Uh, I, I hope I see you at the end. Nor did he say, yeah, I'll be your guide, but when times get trouble, I'm going to peace out, and I hope you make it. But rather, he's telling us that, that in the midst of the thick of it, he will be there with his people. And the gospel emphasizes just how much he was willing to be with his people, just how much he was willing to endure the cost for his people. In the gospel according to John, Jesus proclaims, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus is the one who laid down his life for the sheep. Not only did Jesus go through the valley of the shadow of death, but he endured death itself, death on a cross, For those that had rebelled against him, he bore our evil, our wickedness, and came out victorious. For he rose from the dead and now continues to lead us. I mean, think of how he concludes prior to his ascension in Matthew 28. I am with you always to the end of the age. See, God does, Jesus desires you to be in his fold. 
we know it'll be costly. It means giving up our guides and and our desired destination. It means doing a complete U-turn in our life and submitting to Christ. Christ, the chief shepherd, becomes your guide and your guard. And though it is costly, he's the only way to arrive home safely. And if you, if you have more questions on what it means to follow Christ and what it means to have him actually be your guard and your guide, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. I know Doug would as well. Or, or come talk with the person that you came with. Don't leave here questioning what does it actually mean to follow Christ. See, and, though the, and through the gospel, we see Jesus as guide and guard. He leads He directs, he protects. But we also see that through the gospel, the path has been made clear. We know the destination. Verses five and six. You prepared a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In verses 5 and 6, we actually see this, this shift in imagery. Or 1 through 4, David's kind of identifying as a sheep with God as his shepherd. And in 5 and 6, now he identifies as a, as a person where God is his host. God is now the host as his followers sit around the table, really as honored guests. And where is this table? It's in the presence of of enemies. Yet the location has no effect on God. Rather, we are feasting in the midst of hostile territories. And God eating with his people identi- like really identifies an intimacy in relationship. God identifies with his people. We see this as he honors his people by pouring oil on their head and never letting their cup run dry. He's the ultimate host. It just shows the depth of God's relationship with his people. And how comforting is this truth? That when life feels heavy, when we feel like the world may be attacking us, where we feel like we are in hostile territories, and as the years go by, that feels elevated, that that God actually feasts with his people. The place of ultimate communion is with him when we sit with him. With God as our guide and God as our guard, we head towards our destination knowing, in verse 6, that goodness and mercy will follow us. And that's not just today, not just tomorrow, but every day. All the days of my life. The Lord's leading is one of goodness and mercy forever. I mean, these truths point to this image of just eternal security and an ongoing relationship with the Lord. I mean, his, his word says this much. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. 
a verse we're very familiar with. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So what is our destination? Where is Christ leading us? David includes the psalm. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, David is writing, longing for the temple of the Lord to be built. And yet we know that that David actually isn't the one that's privileged enough to build the temple. That ends up being his son, Solomon. But David's desire for the house of the Lord, this, this temple imagery, is because we understand the house or the temple of the Lord to be where God dwells with his people, where he comes down in all of his glory and rests. It is here that they commune with God and he communes with them. So for David, this idea of dwelling in the house forever denotes always being in God's presence, always being in God's care. Wherever we go, he goes. And what comfort and joy we have as new covenant believers that we can rejoice that God is with us forever. His spirit resides with us. And we as the church, or as Peter says, like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. Just sit in that reality. You can think of of us in this room as spiritual stones that are being put together, building up the house, representing the presence of God in our lives to one another and the watching world. David said, I I, I shall dwell in the house. And for us, it's really, I am. I'm dwelling in the house slash I I am the house. It's this beautiful, unique reality that the Spirit actually indwells within his people. We are with the Lord in the here and now. The living God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. The one that protects. The good shepherd, the everlasting to everlasting one resides with you. The truth sustains and brings joy to our life. So therefore, when we are struggling, when we are going through the valley of the shadow of death, this reminds us that God is with his people. He's with us. will never leave us. And yet this also points to us knowing that, yeah, God is with us, but we haven't actually arrived at the destination. It's kind of this now and not yet reality. His presence gives us comfort in the here and now and yet fills us with hope for the future. For again, we know that we are merely sojourners and strangers on this earth. We're merely passing through, waiting for our shepherd king to return, to take us home. His goodness, his mercy, his presence sustains us until that day as we long for our final destination. In many ways, Emerson was right. Life is a journey. A journey that will have many mountaintop experiences and many valley-low hardships. 
A journey where our path is clear for miles ahead to a journey where all of a sudden we're hit with a blind corner, a blind curve that nearly destroys us. A journey where the road feels newly paved to a road that is potholes that are unavoidable. A journey of unknown and confusion. But the life of a follower of Christ is not without a clear destination. We have our eyes on the prize for which Christ has called us. And not only has Christ called us, but he leads us. And he stays by our side. He is our co-pilot, guarding and guiding. We have a sure and steady home in and through Christ. So are you headed there? May we be people who follow the shepherd, for he is our guide and guard who leads us home. Let's pray.